Man, they have pissed me off. Inferring I have no passion. Phoning it in. Are you shitting me? Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Grillin' JR with the voice of wrestling. Hall of Famer, Mr. Jim Ross. Goddamn layovers. He's jungle boy. The little balls would not fit to a family. It's play fighting. Come on. You need to pull your head out of your ass. Everybody's a booker. Everybody's a creative genius. Why we book them? You're not an expert. I'm an expert. So maybe you should listen. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Grillin' JR with the voice of wrestling, the Hall of Famer himself, Mr. Jim Ross. Jim, how are you, man? Conrad, I'm finer than frog hair split four ways. Boy, that is an old school Southern phrase right there. Yes, sir. And I'm good today. Thank God I got up. I'm happy. I've got a lot to be thankful for, including uh, all the folks tuning into our podcast, which seems to be growing by the week. And uh, I'm overwhelmed with the success that uh, you booked and created. I'm glad to be along for the ride. Well, we appreciate your faith and confidence in us and uh, making this a priority. And uh, I know it's you're, it's busier than ever these days with AEW. Of course, we're on the final stretch now. AEW Revolution, of course, it's sold out, sold out almost immediately. The only way to uh, catch the show this weekend is live on pay-per-view. And uh, if it's not with your local cable provider, Fight TV can probably help you out. Uh, man, this is going to be, uh, quite the card, you know, with, uh, Cody and MJF finally getting the big payoff, John Moxley and the world title hunt. What do you expect this weekend? Well, uh, it's loaded cards loaded. Uh, you got a lot of the thing about having young talents on your roster. Uh, they love the competition. They're still, uh, full of P and V. Uh, wide-eyed and bushy-tailed, any other cliche you want to throw in there. But the every match is going to outperform the previous match. Everyone's going to want to have the match of the night. And I'm sure it's that way with WWE pay-per-views and Ring of Honor, whomever else has a big show. But when you got a primarily primarily young audience, a young roster, uh, I think you see that more prevalently. And you got guys in one match that has something to prove still at this stage of career, talking about Jericho and Moxley, you know, they both defected from WWE. Uh, they, they left because they were unfulfilled creatively in AEW with no writers. Uh, they had the opportunity to contribute strongly to their own creative. And I firmly believe Conrad. And, and I think, I think you'll agree with this, that, that when we in any phase of our life, uh, have a hand in creative, whatever we're creating whatever that may be, not wrestling necessarily, but anything, uh, when we have a, a, a vested interest, we have skin in the game. We are more likely to give more effort to make sure that the skin we provided works. And I think that's what you're going to see. You know, the culmination of starting on the air in October, first pay-per-view of this, uh, of this uh, decade for us, a lot of things you could talk about, but I think the competition is going to be good. Uh, these kids, no matter what matches they are. Uh, I think everybody's going to uh, give great effort. Crowd's going to be alive. I found out in my experience over the years that the longer a show is sold out, and once you arrive to the venue, that crowd is ready to go. They have been waiting a long time for this event, and uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Bleacher Report has the pay-per-view. All the normal pay-per-view companies uh, fight, as you mentioned, F-I-T-E. If you're listening outside the United States, fight's a great way to go about watching this pay-per-view. All you got to do is have a Wi-Fi and have at it. So it's pretty cool. I'm looking forward to it. We're going to go from 
we're, we're, uh, you know, Kansas city was good straight into Chicago. I don't mind spending an extra day or so in Chicago so I can load up on red meat <laughs> and my colon can cry for another day or two, but it's going to be good, man. I'm excited about it. I'm, I'm excited about this young company and how, what they're, what we're doing and, and uh, getting better, a little bit better every week. I thought our show from Atlanta a few weeks ago, people still talking about it. Cody's moonsault off the top and things of that nature. The whole card was good. That tag match uh, with the Lucha Bros and the Young Bucks was hellfire. That was really, really good. So I'm excited about Chicago. Obviously, I'm I'm rambling, but I I'm, I'm pumped up about it. It's going to be a lot of fun. And I hope to go to one of my favorite steakhouses, Gibson's. Gibson's is the place to be. And, uh, I'm jealous. I won't be with you. I've got a family event in North Carolina this weekend. So instead uh, I'll be watching, uh, the live pay-per-view and you should too pick up the AEW revolution pay-per-view support Jim Ross, support Tony Schiavone, the voice of wrestling and the voice of your childhood. And now, uh, 40% of your work week, thanks to Jim and Tony's podcast, AEW revolution. It's this Saturday. All right, Jim, let's talk about the topic at hand. Of course, we're here today to talk about no way out 2000, which went down 20 years ago today, February 27th from the Hartford civic center in Hartford, Connecticut. It drew a sellout 12,551 fans paying $451,625 at the gate and another 97 grand in merchandise. Let's talk about 2000 though. We're, we're fresh off the Royal rumble 2000, which we've recently covered here on the show. Just a phenomenal show on top. We would see the rock win the Royal rumble match last eliminating the big show. We also saw one of my favorite, maybe my favorite triple H match ever him and cactus Jack in a street fight, but now mankind or cactus Jack, as it were, he really wants to up the stakes. So he's put his career on the line in this match. Uh, he wants one more shot at triple H's world title. So if he beats triple H, he's the champ. And if he doesn't, he's got to retire now along the way, something major happens in wrestling. The January 31st raw sees something that a lot of people never thought they would see happen. Not just one guy jump, but a whole host of them, Eddie Guerrero, Dean Malenko, Perry Saturn, and Chris Benoit who most still thought was the WCW world champion walk through the crowd and sit ringside. And we did a show on this way back in the day with Bruce, uh, for something to wrestle. If you haven't heard the full story, we encourage you to go listen to that, but let's talk about your side of this. And I'm sure we'll talk more about these guys individually. Another time. When do you first remember hearing that Perry Saturn had contacted Bruce and these guys wanted to come in or is that the way it went down? I think it probably was, you know, Bruce is a, Bruce and I was a good, I think formed a good team in talent relations because we both had product knowledge. We're both wrestling guys, uh, much to the chagrin of some of our, uh, superiors wrestling guys. Uh, but I think Perry contacted Bruce and, you know, to start the process. And of course you kind of got to put the brakes on from the beginning until, uh, you find out that these cats are not under contract. Uh, because tampering and lawsuits were the order of the day in, in that respect. So, uh, yeah, it was just a Bruce gave, Bruce told me about it. Uh, and I started following up, uh, got word out to those guys that we were, we were interested, but only if their contract situations had been eased. And then that's when I went to work with Vince and, uh, and, and pitching them. The issue there is going to be really simple. 
And people are going to say, well, I know what that is. Yeah. They weren't six feet tall. They were smaller guys in height. They were huge men as far as passion and skill set was concerned. That's what I was concerned about. That's what I loved about those guys. Uh, and it's ironic that probably if you, if you had to prioritize all the guys, Perry might not have been the number one priority. That would have been Eddie and Benoit and then Malenko and then Perry. But Perry got the ball rolling, much to his credit. And uh, it was a, I thought it was a no-brainer. I thought it was a no-brainer for those guys to come in. It, it's four quality talents that can work babyface or they can work heel. Uh, they, they, they wanted a fresh start. They felt like they deserved more than they were getting creatively. And they were, they were really frozen out in WCW by and large, you know, with the, because of their, because of their size. Uh, and of course, even though I, it sounds hypocritical because Benoit was the last that was a champion when he left, I don't, I don't think he lost the belt. I think he just turned it in. Let's get out of here. So, That's right. uh, you know, he's a, he's a, all, that was a good signing for us. Bruce is very involved in, in that process, uh, as well. And like I said, I thought Bruce and I made a good team in that, in that, in that realm. Uh, so anyway, it was, it was good for us. I love the fact that we finally got Benoit who I'd wanted to hire for a long time and Eddie Guerrero on our team. And I don't think anybody in our company, especially some of the naysaying creative people, uh, would think that, uh, we didn't realize how great both Eddie and Benoit were. We kind of knew Benoit was really, really special and he was. But Eddie really grew in WWE and, uh, he became as good as anybody that we had or we ever had. Let's, uh, let's tell you what Meltzer wrote. He says, Jim Ross in his weekly report claimed the negotiations between both sides had broken down and it was widely reported everywhere by Monday that the four would be debuting on raw in Pittsburgh that day. So finally, a few hours before the show, WWF.com relented and did say they were going to be at the show. So, I mean, I guess this is one of those deals where even though the, uh, the quote unquote dirt sheets had the, uh, the insight and the Intel, we still probably want to make this a surprise and, and we can't very well say, Hey, what are those guys doing here in storyline? If we've acknowledged, well, they're coming to work here. So mm -hmm. we, we've got to sort of keep the storyline. And I guess they tasked you with, uh, making sure that we could tow that line. Yeah. I, I, uh, was at the onus of doing that. The thing. It's real simple, Connor. You said it right off the top. We wanted it to be a surprise. We wanted the arrival of the four radicals to be a surprise. And of course, in our business, you telephone, you telegraph, you tell the wrestler, it's out there. And uh, it's even worse today. People can't keep their mouth shut about things. Uh, they feel in, indebted to these, uh, to the to the newsletter guys and everybody that they're we're a source. I've been talking to them. I've been a source forever. And it's really kind of boring and boring and boorish. Uh, but nonetheless, it ain't going to change. It's only going to get worse because all the, all the avenues we have to explore and getting out information, but yeah, we want it to be a surprise. And by broadcasting it big time, you can look at the other side of the corner too. You can say, well, if you promoted it officially, then it might increase your ratings. It might've, but we wanted, we thought that the surprise factor was more significant than a rating we might get by advertising them in advance. No doubt about it. Uh, Bruce has laid out how everything went down. And one of the things that consistently comes up is Shane Douglas 
thought he was with these guys. And then it comes out that, well, he's not coming in. Do you know why there was no interest in Shane or, or, or what the company's position on him was after his run as Dean Douglas and back in 95, I guess. I think Vince just had a bad taste in his mouth about how that was handled. And it was, it certainly was not all of Shane Douglas fault. He did not have a very auspicious run in 1995, uh, could have had, uh, for whatever reason, uh, the locker, some of the, some in the locker room, uh, kind of froze him out in my view, but, uh, but it's just, he is leaving his, his tenure before did not resonate positively with the, with the old man. And so he was not, uh, on our list. I'm not saying that we wouldn't have hired him if the situation had been a little bit different, but it wasn't. And getting four guys in, uh, that we, the four guys we got, we were really happy with that. And Shane just never had a, it just n- never was a, uh, a, a topic there of any significant, of any, it was a topic. I'll, I'll take that back, but it was a serious topic. So, uh, that was the deal there. You know, it's just, we'd been there, done that. And Vince said, uh, I'm not doing it again. Talk to me a little bit about the, the Chris Benoit, Nancy Sullivan, Kevin Sullivan thing. You have a unique perspective on this. I'm sure. I mean, you're leading talent relations for the biggest company in the world and everybody in the business by this point knew what had happened with Kevin, Chris and Nancy. Uh, what was your stance or take on that? Well, I thought their private life got way too public and it became an angle. It became a storyline and as if we're obligated, uh, to share our personal life, uh, and, you know, that should be voluntary. Uh, it should not be made a storyline out of, uh, my story regarding, uh, the situation I had in 1990, uh, with an unwanted pregnancy, uh, was a story I, I wanted to tell to get off my chest and, uh, share that we can all make mistakes. Uh, I'm not proud of those moments by any stretch of the imagination, but that was me volunteering to our audience that's listening right now. Uh, another, you know, just another another step in the, in the journey. I felt like making that, you know, the marriage dissolving, the, the adultery, the, all this other stuff was simply, uh, unnecessary. We've got to be more creative and we have to go there. And so I wasn't really sure what was true in that whole deal and what wasn't. Uh, but in any event, it made me uncomfortable. Let's, uh, let's keep it moving here. Um, I, well, before we move on, I guess I should ask, what do you think of the creative this passed down the way they debut on, on the next night of the SmackDown tapings, you know, very quickly, it looks like, uh, all those guys are on the losing side of the equation and that's been criticized over the years. Is that another McMahonism. Let's see how they react to losing. Let's see if, if they have an issue with that or what's the, what's the methodology of the thinking that might have played a factor into it, you know, to see where their heads were egos more, more specifically, uh, they were not, they mean the radicals were not booked overwhelmingly well when they first came in, but, uh, you know, the old, there's an old expression, about you know, the cream always rises to the top, blah, blah, blah. And you, you just couldn't. You couldn't ignore, they had charisma. They had in amazing skills from bell to bell. Uh, the talents in the locker room, uh, were lining up to work with them because they knew they would have great matches. I mean, if you're a talent and you get a chance to go out and have a, 
a match with Eddie Guerrero or in, you know, uh, Chris Benoit, for, for example, not with that, not, not discounting the other two guys. Uh, but if you had to prioritize the radicals, I think you'd have, uh, Eddie and Chris at the top of that list. Uh, but all four had skills. So they, I didn't think they were booked real well. It may have been as a test. I'm not sure. And then of course, you know, that Eddie gets hurt right off the get go. Uh, just a freak deal on frog splash. And, uh, then the, then the eyes, that's when the eyes go back to the person that initiated, you know, bringing them in. So I'm sure that Bruce and I both got the evil eye from some of the company that what have you, what have we done here? We signed these small guys and, and they're all, one, of, one of the stars we quote unquote is already hurt. So it was a rough start, but it worked out beautifully. Uh, no doubt about that. Let's keep it moving here. Let's talk about uh, something Meltzer would write about uh, halftime heat. Steve Austin's first live interview aired as the highlight of halftime heat, which aired edited video clips of the Hardy's Dudley match and the swimsuit competition from the Royal rumble with the key parts being edited off the show. Of course, Austin was in a neck brace, obviously in great pain. And it was weird because they showed a clip of him getting run over as the reason for his injury, but almost in WCW like fashion, they did the interview and neither he nor Jim Ross brought up the angle they were selling. Now, before we move on. Can you, do you remember that interview? And do, do you remember sitting down thinking, well, we got to get over that he was hit by a car or did you want to do more quote unquote shoot style? And maybe the office didn't get the memo. I want to tell the truth, right? Steve, Steve wanted to tell the truth. Conrad simple as that, uh, the car angle, because I don't think Steve was overwhelmingly excited about working with, with Rikishi. It's challenging to work with a guy that big, even though Rikishi had great skills and instincts and so forth. Uh, and he's got two very, he's got very talented sons uh, wrestling now as well, but be that as it may, uh, Steve wanted to go more of an honest, uh, stone cold route. Uh, you know, here's what it is. And this is what I'm dealing with. And, and it makes it, it makes it more uh, believable, but, uh, the creative forces wanted to stick with the, uh, sports entertainment theme of, and sell the angle and, and thinking that Steve at somewhere would accept that angle as a good part of his journey. He never did. So, uh, but we just fought orders, you know, you're, you're told to do this and we did that and we did it. And of course is also edited. So, you know, what, if we had talked about it in other terms, it would not have made air. So it was just the way it was, man. That's, that's what they wanted. The producer, the, the owner, the creator wanted this and that's what we provided. Let me ask you, you mentioned Rikishi there. Do you think by this point you guys had already, uh, imagined that this is going to be the payoff? I mean, we know ultimately it wound up being Rikishi, but do you think you knew that at this point or was it still a, a question mark? Well, we knew where we were going. Okay. So yeah, no, what a question mark. I mean, Rikishi was the guy that was earmarked to be good. You get a push the, the almighty God forbid <laughs> push. So, you know, that's what, that was that. And. So Austin, and I obviously knew what the plan was, but he wasn't crazy about the plan. Right. So that's simple as that, man. It just, he wanted to be real and reality based pro wrestling always has worked better than total fantasy and bullshit. Uh, no doubt about that. Let's keep going here. Uh, Meltzer also, all right. Ross brought up Deborah, which is a subject that has never been broached on WWF television before. And Austin said they were engaged and would be married in the near future. And they continued on that the next night on raw. 
Ross was clearly trying to make it seem legit and not like an angle. And Austin was somewhat in character and somewhat not. And even brought up Austin being an icon of the sport, like Bruno San Martino in the sixties and seventies and Hulk Hogan in the eighties and the WWF mentioning two names that are never mentioned and certainly not reverent in, in reverent terms like that on WWF television. Austin estimated three to four months before he could be back in the ring, but also said if he couldn't go full speed, he just wouldn't come back. And Austin was clearly in a lot of pain and a lot of people were stunned by seeing him in that condition and his slurring words and the like. And it was one of those deals where in hindsight, it may have been better had he not done the interview. Do you remember being concerned that man, we're showing him in a, a less than ideal state? Maybe we shouldn't do this. Did you say you don't show or? you don't show John Wayne weak? There you go. You don't you don't, you don't show John Wayne selling. You don't uh, to any degree off a off a non bleeding wound. Uh, it probably in hindsight would have been better if Austin did not do the interview with Jr. And secondly, uh, it it was just uh, it was just a way to pop a rating. Steve was money. Steve was a rating. Whatever he did, wherever he did it, people were going to tune in. And that's what was being sought after on this, on the, uh, that halftime meet interview. It was a unique time. It was a unique, uh, placement and they needed Austin to drive the people to that, that program so that the, it's like a lost leader item in a, in a Walmart, you know, you go in and buy uh, something for 99 cents. It may cost them a dollar and a half, but they don't care because they got you in the store for the 99 cent item. And we got on, we got to watch TV because of the presence uh, the greatest star that we had had it to that point in Stone Cold. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. No doubt about it. It's, uh, it's something that we've heard as wrestling fans for a long time. Guys would say, old timers would say, keep your wife away from the business. Did you have a conversation with Steve about, I don't know, man, is it a good idea that we acknowledge Deborah, or was it more one of those spots where if he didn't acknowledge Deborah, then there really maybe wasn't a role for her on TV at that point. So let's mention her so she can keep a job and keep traveling with me. Uh, no, no, it wasn't, it wasn't, I don't remember discussing with Steve, uh, uh, the whole Deborah topic. Uh, it, I think it was, there were things that we were given, uh, subject matters, bullet points, so to speak to discuss. Uh, but you know, I was not going to go into business for myself and talk about a man's fiance. Sure. Uh, and the, in real life and getting ready to get married in real life without clearing it with him. It wasn't my idea to talk about Deborah. I didn't see a lot of reason to bring her into the equation other than it made Steve more human, uh, I guess, because, you know, he's a man and he's, he's got a, he's, he and this woman are attracted to each other and she's a beautiful, very nice, very smart. She's got a, she's got a master's degree from the university of Alabama now in criminology and uh, doing great. So. Uh, you know, she's just, uh, she was a one, everybody liked Deborah and there's no reason not to, but it, that would topic would not have been brought up unless it was handed to us to bring it up. And I think the only reason the only benefit it had was to kind of make Steve more, uh, of a, of a real person. Uh, 
Uh, so, you know, it was uh, touchy, no doubt, but nobody, Steve was not surprised by anything that we talked about. Your original question was, should we have done the interview in the first place? Probably not. But again, it was a way to get people to tune in. Do you think Steve was concerned at this point that he might not be able to return? Uh, maybe a little, uh, a little bit, but I think, uh, I think Dr. Youngblood, Lloyd Youngblood there in San Antonio, uh, had done such an amazing job of not only the surgery on Steve's neck, uh, but also, um, you know, his, his bedside manner, Dr. Youngblood's bedside manner, uh, it comforted Steve. He felt good about what he was hearing because Dr. Youngblood is a big, strong guy. A nice man, because I spent a lot of time down there on this on his uh, the surgery process, uh, and he he his his talk and his motivation resonated with Steve. So uh, I don't think there was a big this, but you don't know until you get back in the ring. So that's my point. In a short story, long story short, if he had gotten back in the ring, had tingling, numbness, pain, whatever, it was over. But Dr. Youngblood felt very confident that, uh, he had, he had fixed the issue and that Steve would not have those problems, but without a doubt, because his, this is DNA and the narrow spinal, the narrow spinal, uh, spinal cord, we realized that he's not going to have this 20 year career, uh, going forward. He'd already had a long career, uh, but he just wasn't going to be able to do the long-term stuff. And we had to use him more judiciously. Uh, we've got to address his booking a different way, but he, as long as we could not tarnish the image of stone cold, uh, then we we're going to be fine. But I don't think so. I don't, I don't think Steve was ever, he, you got to have doubt Conrad. You got to have the doubt until you're in the ring and bump around and see how you're going to feel the next day and the next day. But, uh, luckily for us, you know, he, he's, he healed, he's a tough son of a bitch. And, and he, he had that, he's still that amazing motor, man, the will to fucking to uh, work hard and, and to be the best, he wasn't done. And so who in the hell are we going to tell him that he's not done? If the doctor's liking it, Steve's liking it, man, world's getting better all the time. No doubt. Let's talk just briefly about the, uh, the PTC campaign against SmackDown. It pops up here again, uh, in February where once again, they're counting anything and everything that you guys are doing. Uh, you know, there's complaints about you guys using the word ass and in interviews complaints against, uh, violence like acolyte bar fights and breaking tables. And of course, chair shots and, uh, all the miss Royal rumble stuff. What was, uh, what was your take on the PTC campaign against, uh, the WWE at the time? I felt like, uh, we gave them too, too much credit. I felt like we made too big a deal out of it. I felt like that uh, by mentioning them and, and reacting to them, that we gave them some, uh, uh, stability, some recognition that they didn't deserve or need. What are they now? Where are they today? Right. Nowhere. We overreacted and did more publicity for them, uh, than we should have. So I thought the company just went way too far with that stuff. And, uh, and I don't know how it really it affected us a little bit. Uh, just being aware, but by and large, it was just a, uh, politically motivated bullshit thing in my view. And people may not agree with that. Uh, but look, there's a goddamn channel changer, man. Every remote has one. If you're uncomfortable with something, turn it off. Oh, I can't do that. Change channel. I might do that. 
but don't just mire in it. Uh, it was crazy. It was just a simple solution. If you're uncomfortable with what we're doing, don't watch. And, uh, but we of course couldn't afford to say that uh, everybody's afraid of everything. So I thought it was a well, way overstated matter in my view. And I might be wrong about that, but I thought it was uh, a lot of waste of time talking about bullshit. Is it something that, that was on Vince's radar and you guys were spending a lot of time talking about it? Or are you saying just in the, in the newsletters and things like that? A lot of people, we were saying too much about it. Some of this is in the upper management people who didn't know anything about wrestling could, could, could at least address and converse over things like the PTC, uh, and other entities, because that was out of the realm, out of the ring. In, in essence, it wasn't about ring performance. It was about, you know, uh, are, are we, are we too coarse? Are we, un, are we too insensitive? And that's what some of the upper management people would discuss with Vince and got him all fired up. And it's like, you know, again, it's just, uh, and of course the newsletters are going to have it in there because it's a news item to, to them. And, uh, and even the newsletters, Meltzer, Keller, all those guys probably help uh, add credibility to a, a, a comp or a organization that may not have needed all that, uh, deserved all that publicity. That's just my take on it. So I'm not, I was never, I was never worried about it because I always felt like it was like a crying wolf or knee jerking that people are leery of paying attention to these political, uh, action groups because they're, they're sometimes they're not perceived very positively as I'm speaking right now. So that's kind of where we were with that Conrad. I didn't like, uh, it's just a, a much to do about not, a, not, a, not, not enough. Let's talk about Vince McMahon. Meltzer would report. Vince McMahon made sports and business headlines on February 3rd with the announcement of him starting his own professional football league called the XFL. Now you may remember a year prior to this, and this is something that doesn't get talked about a lot. McMahon was trying to buy the Canadian football league, like the whole shooting match. All right. And now he's trying to create a rival for the NFL. Since he couldn't buy the Canadian football league as a rival for the NFL, I'll just start my own. And his plan is to have, at least at this point, an eight team league that would kick off in February, 2001, right as the regular NFL season comes to an end, going to have championships and playoffs and whatnot in April. And, uh, the announcement, well, it sent the stock price tumbling. It was down to $11 and 38 cents down from $17 and 88 cents at the time of the announcement, which meant his own net worth dropped from a high of 1.66 billion down to 555 million. So he lost $317 million in change over five days, all based on this announcement. When you first heard that he was interested in the football business the year before, what did you make of his interest in perhaps buying the Canadian football league? I was excited about it. You know, I, I'd watched, uh, the CFL from time to time cause they had, you know, they had a lot of players, uh, and, and Oklahoma had a, a, over the years had contributed a lot of great athletes, a lot uh, into the CFL. There were a lot of, uh, wrestling tie-ins to the CFL, Stu Hart, Kaninsky, Wilbur Snyder, all those dudes. So yeah, I was interested. I was, I was curious as to how he was going to pull it off because, uh, I, that would have been one, I would have been happy to work uh, on that project as well. Uh, but 
I was, I was, I thought it was going to be fun. And, and then the XFL came along and, and, uh, the, the only thing that I was, I got leery about with the XFL was, uh, they're tinkering with the game too much. And and we made it kind of a gimmick football league, uh, with no time to prepare, uh, no way to get chemistry built in teams. Uh, they didn't have enough scrimmages or ex- don't think they had any exhibition games. They met We, I think we had a few scrimmages, but the, the quality of football did not have a chance to be good. And that was the issue. Uh, that's why the XFL then and now, uh, started off the first week, really, really gangbusters. But then the, the, the game did not hold up for the fans taste. They wanted real football, not gimmicky football, not promos, the announcers, i.e. Jesse Ventura and coaches, uh, the, the heel baby face antagonist, uh, protagonist bullshit didn't belong there. And so I think he learned a lot from that because this version of the XFL is a, is a whole lot more about football and the rules that have been tweaked have been tweaked by football people who know what they're doing. And we didn't have an abundance of those uh, back in the original run. So it was a cool idea, better time now than it was then because the rights fees is what's, that's the heartbeat of XFL. It's not selling tickets to live events. They have a decent football league. My friend, Bob Stoops coaches the Dallas franchise. And, uh, I'm, I'm enjoying the game, but I was excited about, uh, this Conrad, I'm a football mark. So just, and I apologize. Use that term to defend somebody. I just believe that any connection with football for my taste was going to be a good experience. No, I'm a football mark too. I don't think that's a bad thing to say, but I think a lot of people wonder if Vince McMahon was being a mark here. Uh, Meltzer would write McMahon took the losses in stride and process what we're talking about guys. He personally lost $317 million just with the announcement, not the league, just the announcement. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, Meltzer would say McMahon took the losses in stride or at least uh, in stride in character, claiming the stock brokerage houses that downgraded his stock after the football announcement don't quote, get it. And that they could quote, kiss his ass. And they were quote, full of prunes, full of prunes is the most Vince McMahon. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. what did you think of, of the way the, 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 the stock reacted and then how Vince reacted to the stock. Well, uh, I, I was a little, I wasn't up on the stock market protocol. Uh, they realized it was a big gamble, uh, that they mean the stock market. And they also realized that, uh, uh, Vince was the, 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 wor- the world of WWE did and still revolves around Vince McMahon. How much is Vince McMahon going to be able to manage his, his, uh, his bread and butter, uh, the WWE and how much time is the XFL going to take away from Vince and his planning and his strategy and so forth and so on. Uh, so, uh, I, I, I didn't, and how he reacted. How can we, any of us be shocked? Some days he was Vince, right? Some moments he was Mr. McMahon. That was a Mr. McMahon answer. Was it timely? Was it appropriate? Hell, I don't know what's timely. Apparently it wasn't very timely, but I'm not surprised that, that, that's what he said. That's just, that's him. Let's keep it moving here. Uh, as we've said, the, the XFL is back now. They've made a lot of changes. If you had to fast forward 
what do you think the XFL looks like in four years? Your opinion. Well, it, it, here's the deal. We know that content is king. Sure. Our little show right here is a very uh, good uh, testament to that statement. Content is king. And because there are so many streaming platforms, uh, net, net streaming networks, uh, a lot of places to play your games, uh, and live, uh, uh, sporting events is at a premium. Uh, that's networks love that. So as long as that rating can stay, uh, solid, I say after about week three or four of the XFL, let's see where it is at that point. If it's still holding up then I, I have no issues with them being a long-term success because the game will get better. And the coaches that they've, that they've uh, attracted now, uh, their staffs, the management, uh, is going to help the strength of the league, notwithstanding the fact that it gives the players an opportunity uh, to, to make it to the next level. When a few XFL guys are quote-unquote discovered uh, out of this season and they get – they make it onto a NFL, uh, roster, a free agent, obviously, whatever it may be. Uh, those are going to be great signs. We had one guy that was, you know, we had, he hate me. They went to Carolina Panthers. Uh, and my friend, Bill Rosinski was the play by play guy there, uh, by the way. And then Tommy Maddox, uh, the quarterback of the L- LA franchise, but the original version became a starting quarterback at one point with the Pittsburgh Steelers. That was, that was big. There was no, but the the league was dead by then. Uh, so I think they got a chance. I really, truly do. It's all built around the rights fee. So if you're saying, well, they didn't only sold 30,000, they only sold this many tickets. It's not about ticket sales, folks. It's about TV ratings. All those football stadiums are in my view is a, is a television studio. Sure. And if they have an entertaining game on an entertaining TV product. And they can produce some guys that graduate from the XFL to the NFL in any capacity. That's going to be good. So I, I think they got a solid chance simply because content is king. Let's talk about football again or, or wrestling instead. Now, um, Sabu is going to leave ECW in early February, 2000. Of course, anytime somebody is moving around in the late nineties or early two thousands, everybody's talking, Oh, where's this kind of going to wind up? Is there any possibility of Sabu having a conversation with you guys in 2000? Uh, possibility existed, but, uh, <clears throat> he didn't have a big, uh, 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 welcoming committee. You know, I don't know if it was personal habits or what hell, who knows? I don't know. Uh, but his reputation, whether it was deserved or not preceded him. No one has ever denied the fact that he was a, you know, a uh, very entertaining, unique entering talent. He was, and, uh, but he for whatever reason, there were little bridge burnings along the way and his reputation got soiled. Was it rightfully soiled or not? I don't, that's up to the person that's, uh, judging it, but he was never seriously considered, uh, as someone that, uh, that we were coveting. Let's talk a little bit about a news that came out in variety in early February. Meltzer would say variety on February 2nd had a story, which ended up leading to a WWF stock rally more than a full point about both CBS and Fox trying to buy stock and land exclusive deals 
with the WWF television franchise for both network and cable. The story said that Viacom and CBS were convinced as late as a week ago that I had a deal, which would keep SmackDown on UPN and shift the cable shows to TNN also owned by CBS and Viacom. The offer would have included a a large cash payment for the equity in the company and would have included mass marketing of the WWF on MTV, which is also owned by Viacom on CBS radio and across all the websites owned by Viacom and CBS. Now, Fox is also a part of the conversation. Meltzer would write the Fox story, which despite denials from Rupert Murdoch, who has said his network has no interest in carrying pro wrestling has actually (laughs) been going on for some time. McMahon claimed this week he had never met with Murdoch, which could be true, but many different people in Fox have meetings with many different people in wrestling, both in and out of the WWF for a good two years. And they've expressed a lot of seriousness about getting into the wrestling business. And there have been meetings as late as last week with people not affiliating with the WWF. So we know what's going to happen. We know ultimately you guys are going to do a TNN deal. It's going to kick e- essentially kill ECW off. Uh, which sucks for them, but great for you guys. But the Fox thing really caught my attention because for years, Rupert Murdoch and Ted Turner were, were big rivals and Rupert was adamant that he would never carry anything. Wrestling looks like he's flirting with it here in 2000 fast forward 19 years. And now he's put it on broadcast television. Did you have any serious conversations with Vince about Fox or the possibility of you guys doing stuff with Fox? Only that it would be a great opportunity if it came about and could be a win-win. We had great uh, confidence in Fox. They were getting bigger and bigger in the sports world. They were, they were developing programming that appealed to males, 18 to 34 and 18 to 49. So, uh, obviously they were a, uh, very intriguing potential home. And even though it took almost two decades, uh, you know, WWE's all over Fox right now. And the irony of that story is, uh, uh, Kevin Dunn called me one time and said here in the last couple of years and said, uh, Hey, you know, you know, these guys at Fox, right? And I said, yeah. And then my buddy at Fox, Jacob Oman, who was one of my dear friends still is senior producer there. Uh, he, he said, can you introduce me to someone that could get the ball rolling or discussions rolling with WWE. And I said, of course I can. He said, keep it, you know, keep it under wraps, but I'd like to, I'd like to have a talk, but I just wanted the right people to talk to. And, uh, so I said, I can handle that. So I hooked up Jacob Oldman and Kevin Dunn to, to talk in at the JW Marriott in uh, Los Angeles. And, uh, I didn't, I wasn't in the meeting. I arranged the meeting got them together. They set their own time and place. And then the rest is history. Uh, the Jacob was a big fan, uh, and a great guy, a uh, great friend of, of, of Jan of mine. Uh, he hurt us about as bad as I did when Jan got killed. So, uh, we're that close. So they met and the, then the discussions were layers were added and more people were added. And uh, all of a sudden now you got what you got. So, uh, we always thought that Fox they're, you know, Conrad, they're getting in the football business. People don't understand how valuable most people, I should say, don't understand how valuable it is to get a very positive, upbeat, creative promo for SmackDown inside the NFL games. Oh, it's huge. It's massive. It's, it's almost, how do you, how do you put a price on that? It's just so, 
so um, amazing how, how important that is. So uh, I'm glad that they got their deal, and I'm glad that uh, uh, this is working out. I know Jacob's excited to have wrestling on his network, and WWE's got to be ecstatic with none of the money that they've made from Fox, but also uh, the brand building and the exposure. So uh, Fox is a great home. It just took us, uh, them, us, I'm not there any longer. It took them, I said, that's a fraudulent slip folks. So you can print that if you want. It took WWE 20 years to get it done, but what the hell look where they are now. It's pretty damn good. Uh, yeah, very damn good. You know, it's funny that you mentioned the JW Marriott, how big of a, a part of your story is that JW Marriott? I mean, there's been so much business that went down there over the years and, you know, even back to the whole, you know, flair symposium thing that you write about in your book for the uh, video game. There's mm-hmm. just, uh, there's a lot of inner workings that happen at that JW Marriott in downtown LA. Man, no lie. It's a great hotel too. It's a great hotel. Uh, gosh, I was there so much, you know, the above the, uh, just across the parking across the, uh, uh, the way there is the, uh, studios upstairs, second level for access TV. That's right. And that's where I went in and did my voiceovers for new Japan with, with my partner, Josh Barnett back in the day. So I was there a lot. I mean, first name basis, these guys, and they, you know, they treat OJR like a, like a family. And I always appreciate that. And that's where I always stay when I go to LA JW Marriott. Uh, so, uh, it, it's, it's pretty damn, that's that hotel's got some interesting stories. I've met a lot of talents there. I've met a lot of business partners there. I've had meetings there, but I don't think any meeting was more important or more significant, but maybe better said than the, uh, Kevin Dunn, Jacob Oldman meeting that got the ball rolling for this Fox project. Let's, uh, let's keep the ball rolling here and let's talk about Sean Michaels and his school. Um, Meltzer would write Sean Michaels students, Lance Cage, Shooter Schultz, American dragon, and Spanky got a tryout for the February 8th SmackDown in Austin, Texas, and the WWF offered all four of them developmental contracts, all but Cade were assigned them on the air on the TWA TV show this past weekend. Uh, the reason Cade couldn't is because he was uh, on an FMW tour over in Japan. We should mention that Lance Cade no longer with us. Um, Spanky is going to go on to become Brian Kendrick. Shooter Schultz would, uh, work, uh, a tag team dark match against Brock Lesnar and Shelton Benjamin. And this little American dragon guy, he's going to go on to become one of the greatest wrestlers there ever was Brian Danielson. We know him as Daniel Bryan in WWE, you know, Sean's school didn't last very long. But goodness gracious, he cranked out the talent here. Did he not? Yeah. When Sean opened his school, it gave him something to do affiliated with the wrestling, which gave us something to do. And that was to continue to uh, try to entice Sean to come back, uh, and get back in the ring and all those things. He loved the business still does. Sean does. And he liked working with the young talents as he's doing now with NXT. Uh, but <clears throat> all those kids are impressive. Uh, Cade had the most appealed events because he was the biggest six, two or three inch guy and, and a good athlete, uh, left us way too soon. Uh, but nobody on that, of those tryout guys, uh, came close to the skill level, uh, Brian Danielson. He was just extraordinary and he's still extraordinary. And somehow or another, he's made it at five, eight or nine. Yeah, he's just that good, man. That's why guys that are thinking about getting into wrestling and are listening to this today. Go back and watch some of the, on YouTube or wherever you find it, WWE network, wherever, 
watch, uh, Ryan Danielson and see how a guy, his size can use his size as a asset because everything else he does as well is really, really good. Uh, if I had a company right now and I wanted to, he, if I had 10 draft picks and had a cluster, pick a, pick a 10 pack, I can promise you that Brian Danielson would be in that group because not only can he, uh, is he a great in-ring performer? Uh, he's a great out of ring talent in as much as the locker room would be well served with more Brian Danielson's in that locker room than they currently are. Guys like him are priceless as a talent and as a, as a teammate and somebody that can contribute for a long, long time. I, I can see him training, coaching, uh, being an agent, wherever they help producer, where they call him, uh, all that stuff. He's just, he was extraordinary and we let him slip away because of his effing size. Let's keep it moving here. And let's talk about a new contract that you guys have signed with sky sports in the UK. Uh, I, I was a little shocked to hear that you're picking up $35 million starting in May, which is going to provide the station with 440 hours of programming per year, which would include SmackDown raw live wire superstars metal eight pay-per-views and WWF classics. You also have a deal with channel four in the UK for Sunday night heat and four pay-per-view shows. And, uh, this big money rights fees is not just a thing now in America, but England as well. Is this found money for Vince or did he always think this was going to be the plan? Well, I think he looked, he's a pretty big vision guy, big picture guy. Uh, if it was existing for other entities like football, baseball, other things, then why couldn't it be that way for pro wrestling? Even though it is a performance art and not a legit or true sport, same weekly programming content is King, uh, episodic television is very valuable. Uh, and, and don't, and of course, NFL is episodic television. Cause they have standings, they have rankings, they have, every game means something in some shape, form or fashion. So I think he always had the vision that it would be there, but a lot of us were pleasantly surprised about the, uh, 35 mil from the, from the UK. And I'm sure now it's even a whole lot more. Uh, Meltzer would also report in this uh, time period that Luna was was let go. And, and apparently there was an incident in California where she allegedly taped the mouth shut of a TV producer. She claimed the producer was her friend and it was a rib, but the producer was very upset about it when she was rehired the last time, since she's had a history of blowups, both before and during her WWF career, she was told the company wasn't going to put up with any problems and Meltzer would report. This isn't expected to uh, affect the career of her husband Gangrel in any form. Talk to us about Luna taping the mouth shut of a TV producer. I think it started out innocently fun and the, uh, uh, the producer got a little embarrassed, uh, and thought he was being made fun of the joke went wrong and went South. Uh, Luna was a handful. Uh, she certainly, this is not a statement folks about her in-ring work for God's sakes. She was a Vashon. She was physical, sometimes uh, more physical than some of the other women wanted to deal with. But Luna had issues, uh, self-esteem issues, uh, anxiety. You know, uh, I really believed, and there's, there's been talents along the way that 
that we're, we're better off not being in the business. It brings with it too many issues and things of that nature that one has to deal with the anxiety of, uh, where, where am I booked? Am I getting a push? Fuck the push. Uh, and <laughs> what's going on here? So that, that's, you know, that's, but Luna was a handful and I, I got more late night phone calls than Luna. Uh, I remember Jan opened answering the phone one night. God, it must've been midnight. And that's she was, well, that's not very, very late. It was late for me. Uh, and to talk to talent, Jan answered the phone by the bed. So I got up. He said, she says, honey, it's Luna. I said, okay, tell her I'll be right with her. So I drag my big butt out of the bed and I go into the living room, shut the bedroom door, go in the living room and, and have a talk with Luna about a toothache. She had a toothache, didn't know what to do about it. I said, first thing I do is go see a dentist. And, uh, well, I don't think I can make TV this week. I said, that's not a problem. Take care of your health, get your tooth fixed. So this problem doesn't continue to linger little things like that. She needed a voice to listen to her. I was happy to do it. Maybe less, maybe more so earlier in the evening than midnight and maybe not about her toothache, but nonetheless, that was my job. I like Luna personally, but she had the She had some, this, like I said, I'm with anxiety. I'm not Dr. Phil here. I'm a better looking man than Dr. Phil, but nonetheless, Conrad, we both, we both know that. But the thing about it is, is she was a handful and, uh, better off away from the stress, the pressures and all the things that she was having to deal with within the business itself. So, uh, it was, a, uh, it was unfortunate it happened that way, but when Luna was on, she was a really good asset to have on the roster. She looked good. She was unique, a very unique heel. Uh, and she could make some of the younger women better because Luna could lead the match. Right. And, uh, you know, that's where we were there. So, Sad, sad ending to that, her story. Another one that left us way too early. Uh, but you know, I, I'm sure now if she was in WWE now and they spotted these, these, these issues, uh, they more than likely would, uh, uh, get her some help. And we should have done that then too. As far as is a fine line at that point in time, how far do you step into their personal life? Uh, and, and what do you do to help them? Well, they, she needed counseling. Right. I'm not talking about drug counseling. I'm talking about counseling. And uh, that, that didn't occur. And that's probably a, a drop ball on, on our part. We, but again, could we have helped her? I don't know. But we sure could have done more than we did. Well, let's talk about the show. The reason we're really here. No Way Out 2000. We've been blabbering on for nearly an hour now. Let's get to it. Our opening match. Man, two of... The all-time greats, Kurt Angle and Chris Jericho. The Intercontinental title is on the line. Both of these guys are bona fide Hall of Famers and many times over world champs. Angle gets the win in 10 minutes and 14 seconds and wins the Intercontinental title. Really good match. Three stars. Um, ultimately, Angle winds up uh, putting the belt up, hitting Jericho with it, and uh, gets the pin. One, two, three. After the match, another referee, Earl Hebner, would come out to tell the original referee, Mr. White, what happened. He didn't care. Let the decision stand. And as a result of this, Angle is not only now the Intercontinental Champion, but he entered the match as the European Champion. So now he's the champ champ, both the European Champion and the Intercontinental title. What did you think of this match and the idea to uh, put both belts on Kurt Angle here? 
two of my favorite guys, two guys I look back upon fondly. I'm so happy that we, we got them signed in, in our company at that time and, and, uh, helped manage their career, uh, two credits to the business in more ways than one. Of course, Jericho now the AEW champion, the first champion, the only champion we've ever had that could end on Saturday night against John Moxley. Time will tell. I liked the match. I liked it more than three stars. I like the match too. Uh, I, I don't think Kurt Angle's capable of having a bad match in this era. Uh, next up, we've got the damn Dudleys taking on, uh, the new age outlaws. Uh, certainly two big time hall of fame tag teams here. Another title change here. The Dudleys win the WWF tag titles, five minutes and 20 seconds. They don't get a ton of time, uh, but the crowd's into it. Meltzer would say fans in Hartford chanted ECW loudly at the start due to his injury or injury. Of course, Billy Gunn was rarely in. But he did do a famouser on Devon. Bubba breaks up the pin, rolling gun out, and then Bubba hit gun in the shoulder with a pipe. And then they do the 3D on Road Dog, one, two, three, for the title switch. Big face pop. Of course, Road Dog is mad at Gun for not breaking up the pin. They're teasing there might be a problem. Meltzer would even say, match was better than you'd think, particularly with one of the guys really working with a handicap. Two and a half stars. I would have liked to have seen him had more time here, but I understand when Billy's hurt, you got to sort of do what you got to do, but we take the titles off the new age outlaws, put it on the Dudleys. So they're acclimating. Well, I mean, these are guys who came in just a handful of months before, and now they're your tag champs. Yeah. Uh, Billy had a, a rotator cuff, severe rotator, rotator cuff injury that would, uh, require surgery, you know, days after this uh, event. And then he was going to be out to help eight months or so it was serious. So he could barely get through what the match. That's why the time was cut so short to keep it action, keep it moving and, uh, uh, and not, uh, linger and try to and maybe do more with Billy than he could do. And further and even more injuries, the rotator cuff, very delicate injury. Uh, but it was two great teams, no doubt about it. It was a great win for the Dudleys. It really launched them. I thought in a good way. And then of course they became, uh, stalwarts in the tag team division. You know, uh, I, I, and Bubba, Bubba's oftentimes overlooked, uh, for his, uh, his ability to strategize a match. And I think the folks that listen to him and Dave LaGreco and busted open on Sirius XM will hear that when, when Bubba's on the radio several days a week, he's a very good, he's got a very brilliant mind. So. He and Devon were pretty good additions for us. I'm so glad that we, we signed them. And of course, subsequently they would go on to have some of the most historic and memorable matches with the TLC matches and stuff with the Hardys and the and edge and Christian. So short match because of the injury, but we got accomplished what we needed to do. The belts had to come off of, uh, the, the outlaws because of Billy's injury. And I thought we did that in a pretty good way even though the match was only five minutes and 20 seconds. Let me ask you, you talked about Bubba. I think a lot of people respect his creativity, but for whatever reason, as you said, I don't know that he gets enough just do or respect. We've also heard over the years that Devon was everybody's favorite, super easy to get along with. Uh, maybe the disposition of Bubba was not always polite or, or, or pleasant or at its best. Do you think that? he had some sort of a, a quote unquote attitude issue that has kept him back in the business as a result, because even you acknowledge that 
for as smart as a guy as he is, maybe not enough people are acknowledging it. Did he not endear himself to the right people once upon a time? Or, or what do you think was the issue? Well, Bubba, uh, had, uh, unique presentation skills. Uh, he usually cut to the chase. Sometimes he could be a little coarse. He was very upfront and some people don't handle upfrontness as well as others. Uh, but I, I always, you know, we've had, I've had several sit downs with Bubba negotiations, payoffs, all these things. Uh, so I didn't have as big an issue with it as uh, some guys, but talents, uh, that had issues with them or because Bubba knew probably more about the match than they did. Sure. He, you know, and he knew what he could do good and what he could do to help get them over and, and the Dudleys over. So I, I just think it was presentation skills. Uh, and you know, he's a big, he, at that time he's close to three bills. New Yorker, you know, could be brash and bold and outspoken. That's just the way it is, man. And, and, uh, I, I, I will never, ever have one moment of regret, uh, signing the Dudleys. Devon was easier to get along with. Devon was more of a people person in that regard. Bubba was big and brash, right? And here it is. And so I, I, uh, I enjoyed that because it's a hell of a lot better sometimes Conrad for a talent to tell you what time it is. And try instead of trying to tell you how to make the watch, sure. Bubba would always tell you what time it is without going to some long ass self-serving, uh, dissertation. Uh, so I enjoyed working with him and I still enjoy listening to him. Uh, he's a smart guy and he's probably being underutilized in his career right now because he's still a very good heel. He knows how to be a heel. He likes being a heel. Uh, but I think somebody's missing a boat by not having Bubba in a think tank a creative, uh, environment where he can actually affect change, right. not be a yes man. Cause he would fail as being a yes man. So I, I've always, I'm a big Dudley fan. Both those guys never gave me any issues, but whether did they have to be managed? Yes. And what that meant was folks communication. I communicated with them and they, and I, I think if you talk to them today, they tell you the same thing. I was always straight and honest with them because that's the only way to deal with any talent especially talents that know what the score is. I got to tell you, the Dudley boys are one of my low key favorite tag teams of all time. I do think they're criminally underrated. Uh, I even went through a, a run where just to make my friends laugh whenever, you know, we would meet a new, uh, hall of famer like yourself. When the subject of tag team wrestling came up, I would say, uh, Hey, who's the greatest tag team of all time. And why is it the Dudley boys? W <laughs> why do you think that? Maybe is it because of their ECW roots? Is it because, um, they wrestled in tie dye t-shirts? What, what do you think it is that keeps the Dudley boys from being in that all time, great conversation? Because certainly their accolades, the big matches they've had, the title runs they've had, the characters they were, the money they drew to use an old school phrase, mm -hmm. it's gotta be in the conversation, but for whatever reason, people just sort of overlook them. I feel like, well, there's a little bit of the ECW bias that uh, trails along with them, uh, unfairly, you know, uh, in a lot of the, you know, a lot of ECW guys, I hired a bunch of ECW guys, uh, Paul Heyman was, you know, I gave Paul Heyman his big break on television back in the late eighties and he was Mr. ECW. I had no issues with ECW except they couldn't, it wasn't going to be martial martial law and they weren't going to, they were not going to make the rules and the, the inmates were not going to run the asylum in WWE. Once those points are established, you be yourself, but be a team player. 
and I found them to be themselves, uh, Bubba for what it was good, bad or indifferent, whomever was on the other side, but uh, they were, uh, they were team players without a doubt. They were good team players, but I think the ECW issue had a little bit to do with it. Uh, but, uh, and, and, and also at that time, maybe the tenure, they hadn't been around to the point where they were like Patterson and Stevens. They weren't like the rock and roll where it's still tagging a uh, Ricky and Robert. They weren't like the young bucks now who've been a tag team for over a decade. Uh, well, finally, I think they got their just due now. I believe going into the hall of fame in WWE was very, uh, timely, very well deserved, but I think the ECW stigma, uh, had a little bit to do with it. And sometimes in the ECW wor- uh, world, l- looking at it from the outside in, people will see, uh, spots, uh, hardcore, uh, chairs and violence and blood and cake pans and this, that, and the other barbed wire, whatever. But they overlooked the fact that Bubba and Devon were a really good wrestling heel team, really good wrestling heel team. Could they be, could they brawl and be violent? Of course they could. But I think that sometimes people, uh, help that against them, which is really not fair. Let's, uh, let's briefly talk about, you know, that ECW stigma you mentioned in March of 99, that's when public enemy comes over. And they, of course they had most recently been in WCW, but they came in with a lot of fanfare as being sort of ECW guys where Paul Heyman, you know, really had that fan base bought into the public enemy fast forward to August of that year. And that's when the Dudley boys signed with you guys. Do you think some of the hesitation about, you know, what these guys could really do was unfairly based on the experience that public enemy brought to the company? Maybe again, it's all under the ECW umbrella, right? Again, not fair. Can't judge a talent by his company. Uh, and they were doing what they were booked to do. Uh, I thought that Bubba and Devon had a more realistic approach to their value, their worth and their game and knew that they had some miles to travel to get to the top of that tag team mountain that they eventually scaled. Uh, I think that the public enemy had a little higher opinion of themselves and I believe it showed in the locker room from what I was told and, uh, you know, just two different teams, but the overlying thing, and again, use the umbrella term, they were both under that same umbrella of ECW and, and that took some people, well, I'm going to wait and see. So, uh, we waited and saw that the Dudleys were excellent and they have been excellent since day one. And, and, uh, again, they're, they're just, they were not the team. They were a better team than, uh, uh, public enemy. I thought I'm not knocking public enemy. You know, people say, well, you knock public enemy. They're dead. No, I just, in my opinion, as a team comparing the two, the Dudleys were far better than public enemy. Let's, uh, let's keep it moving here. Let's talk about the next match. It's Mark Henry and viscera. They go three minutes and 47 seconds. So there is a merciful God. Uh, Meltzer would write Jim Ross at the onset said this match wasn't going to be worth many stars. There was no heat. Even with the strong angles they played, the fans chanted boring loudly within seconds. Both guys worked hard, but it was better than you would figure it to be, particularly with both guys working with a handicap in that they stink. Uh, May young did a run in. She's still pregnant. By the way, Viscera shoves her down, sets her up to splash her, but Henry stops him with a shoulder block and pins him with a body slam. Most of the finish didn't air to satellite transmission trouble. 
you could joke just getting the radio version of what really happened from Lawler and Ross was way better than actually seeing it, but the finish <laughs> really wasn't that bad quarter star. I feel yeah. like you have managed Meltzer's expectations. When you start by saying this isn't going to be worth many stars, maybe yeah. he goes into the match at this point saying, oh, it's going to suck and winds up saying, oh, it's not that bad. I should have said that to be honest with you. It's not going to be worth many stars this is a flippant remark trying to be funny because the match was cold. He had two giant super heavyweights. You know, I remember Visser delivering a, I think an Enziguri or something in that match, which was pretty uh, jaw dropping. And we all knew even that early that, you know, Mark Henry was going to be special. It was just a matter of how long his journey would take to get to that special f- piece of property. Uh, and so it just, it, we, the booking was tough on those guys. Uh, and the May thing added the comedy, uh, and you know, so you sometimes trying to mix comedy and and, uh, you know, the entertainment side of sports entertainment is, 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 can be a little bit uh, of a conflict, but the guys worked hard. They just had nothing to work with. There's no story. And all it was, was these are two of the biggest guys on the roster. Look at them, look how big they are. And that's not enough. So, uh, and, and I, the, the, this or the, one of the, this was an interesting cat. There was a, there was, it was going around that there was a doctor in the Northeast when Viagra first became a, uh, 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 a deal that he was giving the boys Viagra. You know, I didn't think anything of it sure. uh, as a head of talent relations. Yeah. I didn't know, you know, I'd never taken a Viagra. I didn't know it had any health issues or whatever, but when I was doing my due diligence as a little forensic, uh, study here. I found, I heard from his buddies that Vistra took Viagra on the road to watch porn. And I, I'm thinking, well, how do I address this deal? This is not really my manual of, uh, por- uh, Viagra taking porn watchers. I didn't have anything against either one of those things, but to, to address it with a 400 pound man, uh, was a little bit daunting. So, uh, but I, I, I like both those guys. Vistra passed away too soon again, you know, his weight issues and, and, uh, eating habits and things of that nature, a, a very talented big man. I'm telling you very underrated. He, 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 uh, went afoul with the wrong people. He got, he fell out of the part of the party loyalty, so to speak. How though? What happened? How did he fall well, out of like, favor? Well, he, he hurt people. Oh, okay. He hurt Kevin Nash and mm-hmm. that's not good. Well, I remember the yeah. spot you're talking about where he, Kevin's on his stomach and down comes, uh, Mabel and right on the mm-hmm. back. And that's not a good day. No, no. And, uh, it could have been worse, but he was sometimes careless, but the, his size, his conditioning, all those things, uh, could pl- did play a, a part in his success and failure, but, uh, what he could do, some things he did were really pretty amazing. I've never seen a human being that big do an enziguri before or since. So it was pretty cool in that regard. But, uh, Nelson Frazier, good guy, likable, lovable fella. No doubt about it. Everybody liked being around him. Just a big kid. And of course, Mark with it being Olympian and, you know, strongest man in the world, all those great acc- accolades that he earned. Uh, we knew long-term Mark was going to be, Mark was a better athlete. Mark was as good a super heavyweight athlete as I ever saw feet, agility, the whole nine yards. So, uh, it was a, that match was a sign of things to come, 
but three minutes and 47 seconds of match time was not too short for me. Let's talk, let's talk about, um, the, the whole Viagra viscera thing. I think it was Teddy long years ago, did a shoot interview where he talked about how, uh, viscera would take these and just sit around the locker room, like just to see what it would do. And <laughs> I, I don't know why that amused me. Uh, but, but your commentary, he said, uh, oh, look, look how big these guys are. Well, if, let's talk about the next match and what a match it is, man. We've got Christian and edge who are going to fight for the number one contendership, for the WWF tag team titles against Matt and Jeff Hardy. What a match this is. The storyline here is that Terry Runnels has returned. Meltzer would say she's dropped more weight as well. Since her ribs are showing and it's even more pronounced than Francine's. Aside from the implants, it looks like her skin was literally stretched over nothing but bones. Anyway, she asked the acolytes for help. So they were at ringside good match, but actually a little disappointing since it couldn't compare to many of their previous encounters. Part of it was the crowd was late way less into it than you would expect. I actually liked the match and I know Meltzer is critical because it wasn't maybe as uh, high profile or high risk as some of the other confrontations. But I don't think these guys ever had a bad match. Of course, eventually the acolytes come into play. Farouk uh, nearly somehow loses Jeff on a dominator. He's got a terrible time getting him up and then drops him on his head. They're teasing problems with Edge and Christian as Christian doesn't want to win due to Runnels turning on the Hardys. And Edge is taking the tack that they're getting a tag title shot and you take wins in wrestling any way you can get them. Edge and Christian win, become the number one contenders, three stars. What'd you think? Uh, loved it. I love the match. It's a, it's a forgotten classic, forgotten classic. Uh, I, I believe edge and Christian, I mean, they became the number one contenders that night. Uh, and the chemistry that E and C had with uh, Matt and Jeff was, uh, ama- amazing. It was just that Rembrandt on a different kind of canvas thing. Uh, I love the match and, uh, and all those guys. And the other thing from an ego standpoint, I signed off four of those guys and I really am proud of that accomplishment that just to give them a get. I've always said, I got some guys jerseys. We've got them on the roster. Now go play. And they went and played and they played big time for a long time. And of course the, the one of the big news right now is with, uh, uh, Matt, what's Matt going to do? You know, I heard that Jeff was back at the performance center. Hopefully he's healthy. Uh, and all that good stuff. He's an amazing talent when he is. And Matt, of course, seems to be getting ready to leave WWE. I thought this was very ironic. WWE booked Matt with this thing with, with, uh, Randy Orton, who's just absolutely amazing as a villain. Uh, yeah, I guess to bury Matt, uh, you know, to make him look bad. Uh, and I thought that they did just the opposite. If you want to, if you want someone to, to fade away or to not be, uh, relevant, you don't put them on television. You don't put them on television. I'll say that again. And Matt got great exposure on TV. And then the promo that he did, uh, recently where uh, he was talking about, you know, his injury and he came to fight and all these things made him a bigger, made him a martyr. So their whole damn plan was reverse. The psychology was wrong, which nothing surprised me there, but, uh, they, it seemed like WWE has trouble getting baby faces over. It's not an easy thing, by the way, but Matt Hardy got over inadvertently. Uh, and I'm surprised 
that WWE, and then maybe they are making another run at him to give him a lot of money to not leave because they have a commodity there that people believe in that they like, uh, and they enjoy seeing perform. So, uh, I just thought that tag match, we always talk about TLCs and these sensational matches with inanimate objects, tables, ladders, and chairs. Oh my. Uh, but I thought this was one of the unsung best tag team matches that we never talk about. No, I agree. I really enjoy this match. Uh, you know, I, I think people hold it to an unfair standard when they talk about the no mercy match, you know, the famous ladder match that happened a few months prior in October, but as far as just traditional wrestling, no gimmicks, quote unquote, this is uh, about as good as it's going to get. Uh, I am curious, hypothetically, if Matt Hardy's contract really is up and they're not killing off this version of his character so they can bring back more of his woke in style that he made so popular four or five years ago. Do you, uh, do you think there'd be a spot for him in AEW? I would hope so. I would hope anybody that's got skills on the, uh, level of Matt Hardy would be welcome in AEW. That's how you build a great roster, uh, diversity, uh, different looks and, and things of that nature. But the, the common denominator is a high skill set. And I believe that Matt Hardy still has a very high skill set. Uh, he's got a, a phenomenal mind. He's a wrestling guy. He's been a wrestling person since he was a teenager. And I, I hope that, uh, uh wherever he lands, he's going to be happy. But I do know this, wherever Matt Hardy lands, he'll be figured into a great spot and he'll be a wonderful contributor to the team because I see him uh, a lifer, as I've mentioned, uh, long after his in ring bumping career is over. Uh, Matt Hardy has a lot to offer any company. Next up, we've got Taz working with the big boss, man. It's a DQ in 47 seconds. There's really no match here. Prince Albert runs in right away for the DQ. The post-match story is that the two guys continue to pound Taz into the ground. Uh, he keeps trying to grab single legs and keep fighting. Even after boss man breaks a gimmick nightstick over his head and Albert kicks him low. Meltzer gave it a dud rating. What do you think about a two on one beat down like this happening on a pay-per-view never understood the booking. It made no sense. I think it just speaks volumes that, uh, the company on the top side had lost confidence in, in Taz after an amazing debut where he beat the undefeated Kurt angle in New York city at the garden. Uh, just felt, uh, couldn't believe it. Just couldn't believe what we, I, I think it was a situation where we're not, we're not crazy about Taz. Uh, but we don't know what to do with boss man. And then Albert. So it was all left-handed just thrown together. Taz did not get a fair shake in my view in a lot of the bookings and it, it perceived he was dangerous and he was releasing, doing release suplexes and things of that nature. Uh, and you know, the wrong talents I'm assuming, uh, complained. And of course, nobody wants to go out and put a five foot eight or nine guy over, even though he can put their ass. Uh, that didn't matter. So I, I, it was a, I signed Taz and I'm happy that I did, but I feel badly still to this very date. I'm glad he's with us at AEW. I enjoy being around him again. Uh, the fact that, uh, he didn't get the, the shake that he, he deserved. He'd paid his dues. He was a box office attraction. If, if he wasn't over Conrad, then was that pop that he got in the garden? Was that just piped in? Of course not. It was real. People had an emotional investment in this talent. And I think they liked the fact that he was 
not like so many others. He was at 6'3", 245. So I, I, I it was bad. It's bad booking. Didn't make any sense. It did nothing for anybody, nothing for anybody. And when you can say that it's bad booking. Next up, we've got X-Pac and Kane in an ODQ match, seven minutes and 49 seconds. Meltzer really liked it. He says X-Pac did his best singles pay-per-view match in a long time, carrying Kane, who was working with a pool growing a lot of brawling. Uh, ultimately he gives it two and three quarter stars. Tori is here by the way. Uh, and Meltzer would even say, uh, after she slapped Paul bear, it was really funny seeing bear then chase Tori around the ring. No, he never caught her. In <laughs> fact, even though bear has lost a ton of weight, he still probably blew up after less than 30 feet of running. Um, ultimately two and three quarter stars is the rating. It's a DQ. What'd you think? Uh, enjoyed it. Uh, I, you know, Glenn Jacobs, uh, mayor of Knox County, Tennessee, one of my favorite guys ever. You know, I saw him first as a Unabomber and uh, Jim Cornette uh, grabbed him there in OVW. Uh, and I loved him. I still do. Um, I was going to, I have a, I'm here in my office as we record this, Conrad, and I, uh, Glenn's got a book out, you know, uh, which is really cool. It's called Mayor Kane. I've read it. It's great. Yeah. And here's what he wrote to me, but I'm going to read, if I may take a, indulge the audience. This is the handwritten uh, inscription on the book that I got from Kane, Glenn Jacobs. And it said, Jr. thank you for all that you have done for me and my family. Without your help, guidance, and constant support, there is no way I'd be where I am today. Love and blessings, Glenn. Now, when you get that from a talent that you're paying discretionary payoffs for, and he's still not pissed off at you, uh, I, I consider that one of the nicest things anybody's ever said about me or to me. And I hope that Glenn share will be okay with me sharing that because that's the kind of person that he is. You know, uh, the one thing about it, when you, when you do pay off discretionary payoff talents that have no, uh, uh, they, they have no, they're okay. They never tell you thanks for the payoff. Never. I may have got that, you know, a handful of times in my entire life, but don't bet, but bet your sweet ass. If they think it's a little bit low for whatever reason they perceive it to be, and some of them are really stupid, uh, then, uh, you, you hear, you hear from it. I never heard any negativity from Glenn for anything. He was always thankful for his spot, his opportunity. He made the most of it. Amazingly athletic, big man, high IQ, great locker room guy. Uh, and I'm so glad that he, that we got him and Sean could be a problem child in the early days. You know, I'm, I, I'm reading now my, uh, the, uh, under the black hat book for the audio version. And I, I just read yesterday, a quote that Sean made, he got a payoff one time and he says, God damn, JR, are you paying me by the fucking pound? <laughs> I said, no. So, uh, he got next week, he got a little extra cheese on his whopper to make him happy. Uh, cause he, maybe, maybe he was right. Maybe the discretionary payoff was a little bit low Two of my favorite guys, bottom line for, I'm trying to get to here. They had a nice match. Uh, I thought Tori was very underrated with the WWE. She did a, a real good job. Uh, in, in despite having a real bad shoulder injury, uh, at one, uh, with us once upon a time. So I like the match Conrad. I like those guys. I like the contrast. Uh, and it was just really, really good stuff. I, I'd give it more than I'd maybe give it three stars, but two and three quarters seemed a little bit low, but I like the match. And they do lots of interesting stuff in this no DQ match that, that ultimately Xbox gets the win for. 
you know, Kane tombstones, Tory, uh, he picks up the steps, X-Pac drop kicks, the steps causing Kane to lose his balance with the steps. And, uh, they fall on him and then X-Pac holds the steps down on his shoulders for the pin. Pretty creative little finish. Yep. Uh, and they told a good story here for a long time. The former tag champs now in a feud against each other. Kane's had a lot of interesting tag partners over the years. And, uh, I think two of the best pairings that he had were with uh, smaller in stature guys, whether it was Sean Waltman or Daniel Bryan. I liked Kane with a smaller tag team partner. Well, it, it, it emphasized his size. Yeah. It underscored how big he was. And that was one of his calling cards is that he was a, almost a near seven footer athletic big man. He was, Glenn was an outstanding, uh, uh, athlete his entire life, basketball, football, the whole nine yards. He had good feet. He could run most pro wrestlers. When you see them run down the rampway or whatever, run like, uh, they've never done this before, or they haven't run ran in, in, in years. It looks, they look awkward. They look uncomfortable, unsettled. Uh, Glenn was a hell of an athlete. So good feet. So for a guy, his size, he was extraordinary in that regard. And the other thing about the finish, uh, I'll tell you that, uh, Waltman is a hell of a finish guy. Sean Walton is another guy that's got a great mind for the wrestling business. And I got, always got a lot of time for Sean. He's still one of my favorite guys to hang around with and talk to. Uh, but I, I just took a personal interest in that match, uh, probably more than maybe I should have maybe, but I, I don't know. I, I don't have any regrets about it, but I liked the match and, and I thought it was creative. And I think Sean probably had a hell of a lot to do with, uh, working out the finish. Next up, we've got too cool and Rikishi Fatu. Taking on Chris Benoit, Harry Saturn, and Dean Malenko. Now, remember, the Radicals just came into the promotion. So, and Chris Benoit is technically the WCW World Champion. And they lost. 12 minutes, 41 seconds, three stars. <sighs> the finish gets a little confusing with everyone everywhere, but it leaves Rikishi and Malenko in the ring. Rikishi scores the clean pin with the pile driver and the bonsai. I guess. You know, you can take solace in the fact that if someone on the team is going to lose, it should be the guy that they feel like has the least upside. Dean Malenko, of course, Eddie Guerrero is, uh, on the outside and he's got the bad elbow, but Chris Benoit and Perry Saturn losing effort right after a debut, hmm. a lot of wrestling fans scratch their head. Why do you think Vince handles his business this way? Couldn't tell you. Uh, prove it to me, prove your team player. Uh, and I remember, uh, that eventually Rakishi was going to be revealed as the assailant on Austin. So in the process of building Rikishi indirectly in this case to finally uh, cross over to the bad side, uh, was probably on Vince's mind and, uh, and, and, and thinking about Steve. So I, I can't argue the concept of that. But I can see where Fatu could have given a lot of guys a stink face. He could have been overpowering in the match. And then you take the fall on Scotty or, or, uh, or, or, uh, Brian, uh, and keep those other guys clean. I didn't like the, I didn't like them losing uh, on the first go around, but it basically, it was, can you pass the test? Will your, will your ego, uh, stand losing in this manner on this point in time? That may have been it. Do I agree with that philosophy? Well, not really, but look, he's the boss. He owns the game. He owns the ring. He owns everything. So that's what he wanted to do. And, uh, and I never heard those guys say one thing. And by the way, 
that match was a three-star match by Meltzer. Might have been a little higher, uh, but it did as much for uh, the baby faces as it the, as, as it was set out to do. In other words, Too Cool and Rikishi came out of that match with more credibility and credence than they had going into it. So that means to me that Benoit, Saturn, and Dean did exactly what their job was laid out to be. And so that I still would have, if I, in hindsight, they would not have lost. Let's keep it moving. The next match is rock versus big show. Winner gets a title shot at WrestleMania. I should remind you shortly after losing the world title to triple H big show turns on the rock by abandoning him in multiple tag matches over the course of January. The rivalry would of course intensify at the Royal rumble. They're the last two guys in the ring. Big show goes to throw rock out of the ring, but before he could do so rock counters, trying to toss big show over the top rope. Both men go over, but rock is able to pull himself back into the ring and is declared the winner. Big show refuses to accept this claims that rock's feet touched the floor before his did. And, uh, now we've got a rematch and here it is one-on-one winner gets a shot at WrestleMania seven minutes and 29 seconds. Big show gets the win and Meltzer says to supposedly earn a title shot at WrestleMania. And he also says show is looking more and more like the big show. He writes, it wasn't much of a match, but I had a surprise finish. Another ref bump by Earl Hebner show hits the choke slam and Tim white runs in to make the count, but Hebner pulls him out of the ring and as white and Hebner roll around the floor, no chance in hell plays to a huge baby face pop. Shane McMahon comes out and rock hits the rock bottom goes for the people's elbow. When McMahon threw a chair in his face and the ref counted the fall star and three quarters. What'd you think of the creative and having big show go over the rock here for a world title shot? Well, you you got to figure out what is your destination, whether you like the booking or not, where are we going next? It's all about next because we're here tonight. We can't change tonight is booked. Uh, but I, I believe that, uh, uh, I didn't, the presentation was not my favorite rock presentation, uh, and not his, uh, fault, uh, quite, quite frankly, um, very convoluted yet referees, uh, rolling around Timmy white and, uh, uh, baby Earl Hebner, uh, you get the run in by Shane, another McMahon interference. Uh, you know, you got, so in other words, how can we take the, the, uh, how can we take rock out of the spotlight and, and help him have a better loss that doesn't quote unquote hurt him. He was so over that nothing was going to hurt rock. And when he got an opponent that's four or 500 pounds, whatever big show was far wasn't that big, but he was a massive human being biggest guy on the roster. Right. Biggest guy, biggest guy in the business. Why can't he win? Why can't that size body weight and that size be the deciding factor? Because he'll have that deciding factor in every match he has, meaning that anytime you book him, he's got a chance to win because the son of a bitch is that damn big. He falls on you. He drops the elbow on you. He slams you. He splashes you, whatever, uh, all those things, but it might not have been exotic enough. It might not have been, you know, cool enough. But I've never understood that philosophy. Uh, Rock losing to a man that size, you know, caving in his chest cavity was, uh, 
to me, drama and it's good stuff, but we had, a, we convoluted it too many distractions just wasn't great in that regard. So, uh, and, and, and shows limited. The one good thing about this match is that it went seven minutes and 29 seconds. It didn't need to be a long epic. It, the, the, we shows cardio and all that stuff was a, you know, we didn't want to stress that out. So, uh, I, I, I love both guys and I have great roots go all the way back to the beginning of both fellas, but it wasn't our best effort creatively, uh, to take care of either one of them. Let's get to the next match. This is a big one. It's for the world title cactus Jack challenging triple H for that belt. If he's not successful, it's going to cost him his career. As a reminder, triple H defeated his then father-in-law Vince McMahon and Armageddon in a no holds barred match after Stephanie McMahon, who triple H had drugged and married against her will earlier in the year, betrayed her father and began siding with triple H. This led to the beginning of what was going to be referred to as the McMahon Helmsley era as Vince suddenly departed the company after the match, of course, all in storyline. Stephanie's brother, Shane is prominently involved in the feud and he's going to leave as well, leaving Stephanie and triple H in charge of the company. And immediately the two began to take out their rivals with the help of a reunited DX leading to a pole match between Foley, who was then wrestling as mankind and the, and of course. Uh, the rock is going to be the first man to grab a pink slip hanging from the pole. And that would keep his job. Mankind loses and therefore was fired on the January 3rd edition of raw triple H defeats big show to regain the world title that he had lost to him at survivor series. Just the prior November later that evening, Foley comes from the crowd. It's a handicap match. One week later, mankind is reinstated and, uh, Eventually triple H emerges victorious by pinning mankind after a brutal attack with the pedigree. And it's announced on raw that triple H would defend his title at the Royal rumble against mankind. But on the addition of SmackDown that followed mankind announced that he's not ready to face triple H, but he does have a substitute cactus Jack <laughs> to go to toe to toe. Of course, a street fight at Royal rumble triple H wins. And the next night, Triple H says he'll give Cactus one more chance at No Way Out. And it's going to be a match of his choosing. But if he agrees to this, he'll retire if he loses the match. And so here we go. The first time we saw Cactus Jack in the company was 1997. He's wrestling Hunter Hearst Helmsley in a street fight and, and uh, on Monday Night Raw at MSG. Fast forward. It'll be his last match, or so we're led to believe. Cactus Jack, 23 minutes, 59 seconds, hell in a cell career versus title, plenty of time, lots of gimmicks, tons of stuff, barbed wire, fire. That's right. Fire. Um, four and a half stars is the rating 23 minutes, 59 seconds. One of the biggest, maybe most forgotten hell in a cell matches ever. Might be a great match. I love calling that match. It was exciting and, and innovative in, in many aspects. Uh, there was a lot of ECW like elements in that match uh, with all the props and the blood and the, and the barbed wire and fire and hell fire and brimstone. Uh, it was just, a, a really, uh, a, a, a very physical work of Matt art. And, uh, I don't know that. Uh, that either guy 
will ever have or did ever have subsequently uh, or will ever have uh, going forward anything that resembles this much success. Some of Hunter's matches with Sean were really amazing and, uh, you know, no doubt. But the emotion, the chemistry, the stipulation, the, the violence, the aggression, all in this wrapped up in this package inside the hell in the cell was absolutely tremendous. So it's, it's just kind of ironic that so Foley had Foley had that, the gift of knowing how to work that hell in the cell match and, and Hunter Paul Levesque is so smart. He, he could pick up on what others have done. There was a Shawn Michaels, uh, hell in a cell match with Taker. There was a famous match in 98 with Taker and, and the Mick in Pittsburgh. Uh, he, so Hunter picks out, he can pick out all these hot spots, so to speak, and do a good job of studying for his match and then turning some of those things into his own. So I thought both guys grew a lot that day. Uh, the, the, the match was amazing. Uh, I don't think it could have been any better. I really enjoyed that, that, and, you know, for all the criticisms that, uh, Paul Levesque gets, uh, from a corporate side, most quite frankly is undeserved. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, you can never, if you're a real fan, you can't, you cannot give him, you can't not uh, give him the credit he's, he deserves for matches like this one with Mick. And the same goes for Mick, you know, Mick's body was starting to break down. He was hurting, you know, a uh, lot of, a lot of little issues there that needed to be addressed for him. And he needed some, t- he didn't need to be booked as much. I, I thought back what we talked about earlier about big show. One of the reasons that big show didn't ever get over in that early days as much as he could have Conrad, because we overexposed the big fella. And unlike we, the concept that, the, that was done with Andre and other attraction guys, Big John Studd, you know, a lot of big guys, you only saw them sporadically. You didn't see them every week on television. And there was a run there where you saw a big show every week on TV and every week he was on television, we took, we chipped away just a little bit as you, at his uniqueness. And I thought that uh, Mick was needing the time off too. He was, he was very overexposed, but the beautiful part about Mick is that when he came out with Cactus Jack, that crowd went crazy. They loved the, these incarnations that, uh, Mrs. Foley's baby boy could bring to the dance. And I, I always look back at this match as one of my favorite matches ever to call, to call. And I'm just very, very proud to be a part of the, both those guys career, uh, when it's all said and done. I, uh, I don't know what to think about this match. First of all, you know, if you can get over some of the carnage, it's one of the most amazing spectacles in the history of wrestling. And if you're going to watch one match from the show, or in fact, one match this week from the archives, go back in time and watch this one, uh, Hunter and cactus pull out all the stops, particularly cactus. And Meltzer makes an astute observation before we get into some of the violence. He says, it should also be mentioned that the cameras did zoom in on 12 fans holding up the lettering of Foley will die. I'm not sure which was sadder, the 12 fans who thought it would be cool to hold it up or the director who thought it was cool to show those fans. Foley seemingly gave everything he had and more than made up for the fact that he can't do that much. He got his knees whipped hard into the steps. He had the steps thrown at his head. Triple H pounded on the steps with a chair. He used the chair for a low blow and a double arm DDT on the chair and a leg sweep on the chair for near falls. And of course, triple H smashes Foley's head into the cage many times. Eventually we even see, you know, Foley blade his arm 
And then we're going to have pile drivers on a table. We're going to have a barbed wire board stashed at ringside. Um, eventually we go through the Spanish announce table. We take the big bump through the fucking cage down to the floor. This one is at least set up with a bit of a stunt. Whereas that did not happen back in June of 98. Oh, I guess I should mention he sets the barbed wire board on fire. It's just, they do everything you can do in a hardcore match here. And this is supposed to be his swan song. We know that's not going to be the case. He's going to, this is going to become, and I know Foley hates this, but this is going to become a wrestling retirement because he's back almost right away. Talk to me about this day. Did, did, did he really think this is it? Did he really want to be done? And did you, as his friend, want him to be done? I wanted him to slow down. I wanted us to quit booking him so much and not put him into these environments where he felt like he had to do little FMW Japan stuff, the hardcore stuff, the explosive barbed wire, this and that, the ECW stuff. Working with inanimate objects is a whole different realm than working with a human being. And when you're going into steps, he did things with his knees and the steps that just were nobody would ever do because it's so the margin for error is almost non-existent. So I never thought, look, I'm not, I'm not a believer. I'm not so naive that I believe that all wrestling retirements are legit because they're not most of them by far are not. Uh, but I felt like that Mick was certainly going to slow down. It had some good success. He's been known to be very frugal. Uh, and, and managed his money very well. He had a lot of other options. He was an accomplished author. He was a New York Times bestselling author. Uh, you know, we see him now doing his one-man shows. He had a lot of options to do uh, that he could do, that he enjoyed doing. But I was hoping that we'd get him out of that environment because I just saw his body deteriorating. And it wasn't just from what he was doing in WWE. There was a lot of damage done uh, uh, before he got to WWE. The things I saw him do in Dallas, uh, when we brought him to Atlanta at, at WCW, uh, you know, that was just Mick. That was his style. That's what he believed was going to make him different because he's never going to have the bodybuilding body. Uh, he's going to, he's going to make it a different way, get noticed in a different way. Uh, he was such a, he was a, it was a hell of a heel, but boy, he was so much better as a baby face because when you see him on promos or you see the twinkle in his eye, it's hard to dislike him. He, he's the kind of guy you would go on a long car trip with. He's the kind of guy you would go out and have a burger with, but he's, he was never, that, that was just Mick. So I was hoping that, uh, he was, we're getting to slow down, but retire. No, hell, anytime somebody says they're retiring, it's normally bullshit. And it was in this case as well, but it sold tickets. It sold pay-per-views and it added to the drama of the presentation. Well, we know that, you know, WrestleMania, it's going to turn into a four way rock, big show, triple H, and of course, Mick Foley for the world title, uh, a McMahon in every corner. What do you think it meant to Mick to get to wrestle in the main event of WrestleMania for the world title? Everything, everything. It was worth all the pain, all the agony, all the sacrifice. Remember Mick grew up in, in long Island. Mick grew up a WWF fan. Mick's the guy that hitchhiked to the garden to watch Snooker jump off the cage on the magnificent Don Morocco. Uh, it meant everything to him. And, uh, even though I'm not a big fan of multiple person matches in the main event at WrestleMania, uh, cause they're sometimes they can get disjointed. 
but I'm sure glad he got that opportunity, quite frankly. And, uh, uh, you know, I think it meant everything to him, Conrad. He just, that's kind of, he's got that kind of kind heart and good soul. And he, he, that's, he, that's meant something to him. It wasn't just another booking, another gig, another payday. It was WrestleMania and it was the main event at WrestleMania. And that I was so happy that he got to do that. But again, we continue to flirt with disaster. Okay. Well, that's one more. Well, we can do one more. Well, let's try to do one more. Come on. Uh, and bookers are that way. Promoters are that way. If something's working, they got to really be uh, hard pressed to, to change their MO. And we were very reluctant because Mick delivered every time he got in the ring. So I, I but I'm glad it, it's worked out for him as it has. Uh, but it was a little bit convoluted booking going in. Uh, it wasn't crazy about the four way when they had it. It was okay. Strong match. Okay. But it wasn't great. It would have been better. It didn't, it didn't, it, it didn't live up to the match that, that, that Hunter and uh, Mick had on the show. That wouldn't you say that the four way, the four was best. I remembered. I called it. I didn't think the four way held up as well as the, this, uh, match we're talking about now with, with Mick and Hunter and Hartford. Let's, uh, let's briefly mention that, uh, no way out here while it was supposed to be the retirement thing. We know that Foley is going to continue to wrestle for a long, long time. Uh, but a lot of people were worried about Mick's well-being after King of the ring, 1998. And now they come in, albeit with a little help and, uh, and do something a little different, uh, with, uh, regards to the, uh, the magic of the bump. Did you know this bump was going to happen through the cage this time? Or, uh, how much of that were you privy to or not privy to? I think because of the, uh, landing area being modified, uh, during the afternoon, well, Lawler and I oftentimes set out at our pronounced position at ringside during the afternoon, uh, him talking to people and visiting and, uh, you know, maybe, uh, uh, scouting the puppies or whatever. I'm taking my notes like a crazy person. And that was not Jerry's style. He didn't like it and I didn't force it on him. So, but we just use that as a little working area, a little working station. But when you see him doing things like that, you say, well, you know, that's gotta be mixed spot. And, it, and it, I didn't sit down and talk to anybody about it. Cause I, the less I know, the better off I was, I could react you know, naturally instead of uh, pre-planned acting. Uh, so yeah, I, but I, at least they were taking precautions to give him a safer landing spot. And that's not to say it wasn't going to be dangerous, but, uh, you know, need, need something was up. What, once you go off the top of the cell, man, it's, it's tainted all those other cell matches. Yeah. What do we do? What do we do now to top what Foley did in 98? Well, quite frankly, you're not going to do anything because nope. whatever you do is going to be a cheap imitation Conrad. Yep. And that's what people are going to refer back to. Well, they, they're just trying to top what Foley did in 98 in Pittsburgh. Well, that isn't going to happen. So I think jumping off higher things, Shane McMahon, for example, well, I'll jump off something higher. Why? Nobody talks about Shane McMahon's bump that one, the one big one he took, where he was up very high. Yeah. You and I talked about this. So when we were over in England, that, um, really the hell in a cell with the second match, it's effectively ruined because now whenever anybody sees that structure, they just know and expect, oh, well, somebody's coming off the top of the thing. And so the rest of the match doesn't really matter. People are waiting on that bump. Right. And by the way, as you said, every time they do it, it's to diminish returns. Like nobody talks about 
Shane's bump off the top of that anymore. It's just, it's, mm. it's not important. No, it's just, it, it comes off as an imitation. So why take the risk? Exactly. And by the way, we should mention, we have got a barn burner of a lineup of shows coming your way. We've put it out there on social media and, uh, we'll run through it real quick before we get out of here today, uh, because I'm excited about next week. It's a sleeper episode. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Mr. Kennedy. <laughs> you get lots of questions over the years, Jr. about, uh, who had the most upside who blah, blah, blah. One of those guys is always Mr. Kennedy because he comes in with a big push and for whatever reason, doesn't have the run that a lot of people expected. I'm looking forward to highlighting his career next week. So look forward to that. Also on March 12th, it'll be the March 13th, 2000 raw is war watch along. And then on the 19th, we're doing clash of the champions one, and then we're going to get a couple of WrestleManias coming your way on March 26th. It's all about WrestleMania nine. We've talked about you jumping over, but not broken down the full card. WrestleMania 2000 will be your way on April 2nd, uh, which is the follow-up show to our no way out show that we just finished here now. And then on April 9th, how about clash of the champion six raging Cajun, Ric Flair, Ricky, the dragon steamboat two of the all-time greats that was head to head with a WrestleMania April 16th. That's all about Vicky Guerrero, April 23rd hustle loyalty and respect out the ass with John Cena. And then on April 30th, Backlash 2000, lots of good stuff coming up on Grillin' JR, right, Jim? Absolutely. Great memories, great visuals for me just to hear those names and at that place and that, that point in time. Happier times for a lot of folks, different times for everybody. It was really cool, and I, I, I'm, uh, I'm excited about it. You guys have done a really cool job. I tell people all the time, so Conrad's a booker here. <laughs> I'm a, I'm, I'm a, I'm, he's booking me, and we're, and we're talking about these things that uh, – that I had a, a personal interest in, I was at present at whatever. Uh, so you guys have done a great job. Is Silva still got a job, by the way. I, I don't know. You know, it's debatable because <laughs> n- not only did he curb my wheel to, to just hailing back, but RockAuto.com's helping me with that. Then the next day, as if this isn't enough, but wait, uh, there's, there's more. He uh, he says, and he's very confused when he turns around in the office and he says. Did Mick Foley have a hell in a cell match at a King of the ring? Oh my God. And I'm like, wait a minute. Are you serious right now? And he's like, why would there be in a hell in a cell match at a King of the ring? And automatically I'm like, well, it was June 28th and it was in Pittsburgh, 1998. And he's like, oh my God, how do you remember that? And I said, well, they threw him off the motherfucker. He flew <laughs> through it. Good God almighty. They've killed him. Somebody stopped the damn match. He's broken in half. Does none of this ring a bell? He's like, oh, that was that match. That was a King of the ring. I don't know what Dave Silva is doing. <laughs> uh, if he, if he, if Terry Funk were here, he'd say, God damn you little bull Ramus fat bastard. You better start studying your history. A hell in a cell match doesn't have to happen always. Oh, my brother, Dory and I would kick your ass. You little bull Ramus round man. And it wasn't a King of the ring. I wasn't, at, it was a King of the ring. It wasn't at a. The hell in a cell was just a match. It was the name of a match. That's right. It got over so much. It became the title of a pay-per-view. So, but I love bull. He does a great job on our graphics and, and he, he took me that great Mexican place in Huntsville. I liked. Oh yeah. Rosie's Mexican cantina. I can't recommend that enough. If you're in Huntsville, got to check that out. And of course, here's the funny part about that. Conrad, we, they put us in a booth. <laughs> Bad booking. Bad booking. Bad placement. I want an aisle seat. 
and we're wiggling to get in and move the table to get in. It was just, it was funnier than hell to a chubby fellas, uh, with a, with a booth next time bull and I go to lunch, it will be at a table. Well, here's, here's what you could have done. You could have either uh, angled the table. So it was scooted and you guys were sort of seesawed and you're sitting at opposite ends, or you could have <laughs> really got some attention and just sat side by side. Yeah. That would have been cool. Yeah. Siegfried and Roy here, uh, <laughs> two weight watcher dropouts, uh, Bill Ramos and Jr. Hey, Conrad, I, I, I don't do this enough. I want to thank the folks just this week or last week. I think it was, uh, we found out on Amazon that under the black hat is the number one pre-selling book. And number two in the wrestling category is, uh, the audio book, which I'm reading now, uh, I'm working on that now. So we're a few days into that project. So I'm really blessed. And I think I want to thank everybody. You know, this book is so personal to me. I've never been involved with anything that is as personal as this, because it's probably the last time that I'm going to write about my ex, my, my late wife, Jan, and, uh, and I'm reading it. It's just so the visuals are so clear and it's hard to read. You know, I stopped reading two or three times the first go around cause I had so many tears in my eyes. I couldn't read seriously. I know it sounds like a sissy. Maybe I'm getting weak in my old age, but no. I, I loved her so much. And the story is so real, so honest that everything we wrote about, I could see again in my mind. So if you're interested in that, you can pre-order the book at Amazon, uh, but you can certainly go to my website, jrsbbq.com, jrsbbq.com. We've got all of our products there. Uh, and, uh, you can order the book. We got a special offer, get the book personalized. There's a free shipping option, all kinds of good stuff. So check out the site. We appreciate just and nothing else. Just dropping by and seeing what we got to offer, but the book's going to be a, a real hit and, uh, we'll, it'll be out around WrestleMania time, ironically. And yes, I'm going to be like every other, uh, independent promoter in the business. I'm going to have some activity during WrestleMania week in Tampa, St. Pete. A lot of book signings. We'll let, the, I don't know the dates yet, but, uh, uh the places, but we're going to have all that done with Simon and Schuster. So I just want to thank folks. Sometimes we don't, we take for granted how much the support means to us. You and I've talked about this a lot, Connie, you know, we, we got a great loyal audience. They were there with us every week. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I love them for that at my stage of my game. I, I can't tell you how much this podcast means to me because I can communicate. It's much like working for AEW. I don't have someone in my ear all the time telling me what to say or what not to say ever. And so sometimes we, we can, as a broadcasters, we're always, uh, the potential of shitting the bed exists when you're, when you're going off the cuff, you're called in a ring, as you said earlier, but, uh, I'm having, having a blast. So thanks guys for, for checking it side out. And, and I hope you're going to, you're going to love the book. I really believe that if you like slobber knocker, uh, then you're going to love this one even more. And as a matter of fact, the other news on Slobberknocker is that it's soon going to be coming out in paperback. So uh, a lot of activity there, and I'm just blessed to be where I am right now. Well, I know where you're going to be on March 17th. You're going to be at Comedy at the Carlson. Tony Schiavone is going to be in tow. It's a late-night show the night before AEW takes over Rochester. It's a 9 p.m. kick. You don't want to miss it. March 17th, 9 o'clock. Tickets are only 30-something bucks right now at supershowlive.com. That's supershowlive.com. Comedy at the Carlson, the voice of wrestling and the voice of your childhood, live and uncensored, unfiltered, like you've never heard them before. 
March 17th, nine o'clock, Rochester, New York. And uh, pick up your tickets right now at supershowlive.com. Don't forget next week, Mr. Kennedy right here on Grillin' JR with the voice of wrestling, Jim Ross. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra five to ten. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.